Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct. I'm Charlie Jane Anders, the author of the upcoming young adult novel, Victories Greater Than Death. And I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm the author of The Future of Another Timeline and the forthcoming book, Four Lost Cities. Today, we're going to be talking about Dune, one of the most important science fiction novels ever published, and also the inspiration for an upcoming movie directed by Denis Villeneuve. We've been very excited by the trailer about, and we're so lucky today to be joined by Haris Durrani, the author of a novella called Technologies of the Self, and also the author of a very thought-provoking essay about Dune that came out recently. So let's not let fear kill our minds. So let's just start off by talking about what Dune is and why it's so important. Dune is a novel that was published in 1965, uh, originally by, I think, a company that mostly published car repair manuals. And it went on to become a huge phenomenon and spawned a ton of sequels. And in fact, sequels are still being published today by the author's son, Brian Herbert, the original author, of course, being Frank Herbert. And Dune is basically the story of a desert planet called Arrakis, which is mostly home to a nomadic people called the Fremen. Basically, it is the most important place in this galactic empire because it's the source of the spice melange, which allows people to travel faster than light without using artificial intelligences because the spice allows them to kind of see the time stream and you know space time from like this other perspective. I'm oversimplifying a little bit. And so whoever controls the spice, as we're told over and over again in the book, controls the universe. Dune has been named many times as the greatest science fiction novel of all time. It's also something that people have argued about for years because it's the story about a young hero named Paul Atreides who travels to this desert planet Arrakis, loses everything, and then basically claws his way back to power by using the desert people and by becoming kind of their messiah. In fact, he's explicitly their messiah, as is spelled out in that book and in the later books. People sometimes say that this is a white savior story. Sometimes people say that it's kind of a parable for our relationship to oil and our wars over oil in the real world. Hadis, what do you think Frank Herbert actually meant to do when he was writing this book? Was he trying to create a satire of the hero's journey? Was he creating something that was going to critique this storyline? Or was he trying to talk about how we can save a place like Dune from exploitation? Yeah, that's a, it's such a great question to start with. Uh, and it's also a really complicated question because I think much of the debate around Dune uh, is about what Herbert's intent was. Part of what makes Dune so fascinating and the reason it has such staying power is the fact that uh, we can have these debates so many years later and that it's such an elusive text in trying to pin down what Herbert was getting at. But I think, I think it is right to say that Herbert wanted Dune to be a satire. I don't know if he meant satire in terms of sort of invoking humor, but to be akin to satire and that he's, he's portraying a trope. I think he, there was an interview somewhere where he says, I'm showing you the savior narrative and your complicity in it. And throughout the whole book, I mean, there, we can get into this further if you want to, but there's a really interesting question about to what degree that is in the text of the first book or to what degree 
that reading of Herbert's intent you can only get from the later books, which sort of more explicitly undo the hero's journey that we get of Paul in book one. Yeah, I mean, there's the hero's journey satire, of course, but then there's also, I think, especially in the first novel, which became the basis for one miniseries and one movie, it is making fun of the oil industry and energy industry more generally. And I, I guess making fun isn't the right phrase, because again, it's it's not funny, but it is satirizing them in that it's a super obvious allegory, like you can't help but see that this is about oil when it's a desert planet and there's people there who are nomadic. And then Paul Atreides, the savior guy, he's this, he's royalty and he comes in, he's this clear upper class wealthy elite who kind of comes in, is going to live in his palace, which is literally surrounded by a bubble and just kind of go out and like suck a bunch of spice out and send it back out you know, into the spice economy that they have. You know, there's those two satires working right alongside each other, you know, a satire of how we tell stories, but also just like a social satire of like how ridiculous um, the oil economy is and how super obviously corrupt and super obviously unfair and unjust it is. Yeah. And actually, we've got a clip of Frank Herbert from an interview in 1977 talking about environmentalism and basically saying that he wants there to be a world for him to leave behind for his grandchildren. I say frequently that I do not want to be put in the position, I refuse to be put in the position of having to tell my grandchildren and I have grandchildren, I'm sorry, there's no more world for you. We used it all up. You know, how much is Dune self-consciously an environmentalist parable? Like how much of it is about the dangers of trying to exploit natural resources at the expense of the habitability of, of the environment. Yeah, I, th- I think it definitely is. I think that's the hallmark of Dune is the environmental politics of it. And I think this also gets back to the question about oil, because uh, I, it is very right. There, there is somewhere where Herbert says Chome, which is the nefarious corporation in Dune. He says Chome is OPEC. And so he is very much thinking about oil, but he also talks about how he started out looking at OPEC. He, he started looking to other kinds of resource problems. So he was looking at, at a sand dunes in Oregon. He was looking at indigenous uh, management of, of, of resources, both for Native Americans, but also he was looking at water scarcity among the, he, quote unquote, the black folk of the Kalahari. And there are so many other analogies he's drawing, and all of them are about the environment in some way. And what is the intersection between savior narratives the politics of the environment and imperialism. Uh, and what makes Dune so interesting is that he brings together these multiple analogies and influences, yet at the same time, at least in my mind, doesn't really homogenize them into saying, oh, you know, like all the oppressed people of the world are, can be, can be sort of explored in this one way. But he's, he's just taking all of these analogies in a really interesting heterogeneous way to thought, think about, uh, environmental racism, uh, as you just mentioned. What's really interesting to think about is at the same time period when he wrote the first book, a few years after that, Garrett Hardin, an ecologist, published a very famous essay called The Tragedy of the Commons. He Basically, he saw he, he went to India, saw the quote unquote masses and said, oh, we shouldn't give them America and Europe shouldn't give them aid because then they'll just be free riders. And then they'll, you know, they'll overpopulate the world and then we'll have resource scarcity and wars and so on. But if you read Dune, I read it as very much critiquing that very idea and talking about resources in a way that's much more 
sympathetic, if not empathetic, to the plight of oppressed peoples. Right. And another kind of key ingredient in a lot of these stories and a lot of these like dialogues around environmental racism and, you know, resource management is this concept of the noble savage. And in fact, the era of Dune is also the era of that famous TV commercial, which shows an indigenous person standing by the side of the road, a Native American watching someone throw a, a, a beer can out of their car and the, the Native American cries as people pollute the environment. And it's sort of this idea that like the noble savage is also kind of more in tune with the environment. And, you know, I feel like maybe Dune in some ways kind of questions that idea, but also it does play into it a little bit. The, the main thing we know about the Fremen is that they're very good at conserving water and that they're very good at like kind of living in harmony with, with their natural environment. I feel like, are they really in tune with their environment? Cause isn't, I mean, not to give, you know, spoilers for this like sprawling tale, but like, Part of the goal of Paul Atreides and part of what the Fremen really want is to change Dune back into a planet that has more diverse ecosystems, that has like water on the surface and that has plant life on the surface of the planet. And there's part of the kind of backstory that gets filled in in some of the other novels is that the planet did used to be kind of Earth-like and then through a variety of Mis, I guess mismanagement, but also management to like enhance spice production. It's been desertified or desertified. <laughs> um, anyway, the point is that I, I wonder about that. Like, are they in tune with the environment or are they actually trying to change the environment? And what is that? How does that kind of put a wrinkle in our story or our allegory? Yeah, totally. I, I definitely agree. I mean, I think uh, what you're hitting on there, to my mind, is the way in which I don't think the Fremen can be considered as sort of one essential entity. In the first book, but, but even more so in the later books, they often differ among themselves about how to deal with their political problems, their philosophical problems, their environmental problems. So you have some Fremen who do want to terraform the planet, but others who don't. It's also, I think, up for debate among readers of how much their plans to terraform were sort of came indigenously from their own practices and how much of it came from the imperial ecologist genes or kinds. For me, when I think about, I think the noble savage is very much part of the discourse uh, that the uh, a literary critic, uh, Edward Said, called Orientalism, uh, which was this idea of a sort of ro romanticized other, usually a sexualized other, but also in general, an other who is homogenous and one entity. And I think what, and acts in one sort of homogenous way, in the same way one, one might say, Islam is one particular thing, or Muslims are one particular thing. And what's so interesting about Dune is both the Fremen among themselves are very are heterogeneous, and then also the, the the references you might think of as Islamic or Middle Eastern or African or some, some other so-called anti-imperial, non-Western term are also scattered throughout the Dune universe. But I think to go back to the noble savage thing, the last thing I'll say that I think is the most interesting part of this question is uh, to comment just on the, the word that the Fremen have for Amen. The word that they have for Amen is Bila Kaifa, which in Dune speak in Chakopska, the Fremen language, which actually comes from a real language, it means without how. That actually doesn't come from Chakopska in the real world. It comes from Arabic, where it also means without how or without modality. And that specific term is that, and so you, you would sort of reading that on its face, you would think, oh, that's an idea of the noble savage, a sort of irrational savage who has a without how, no, sort of no rational approach to something. 
the sort of the unknowability of the environment. But what's so interesting is that specific Arabic reference is a reference to a very particular esoteric position in Islamic theology about the unknowability of God, God's attributes and about the, the, a critique of natural law. So it's still sort of about sort of the irrationality of the savage, maybe, but it's also taking that idea of irrationality from the very complicated intellectual argument in Islamic thought. So it just really complicated when you try to break down um, what Herbert is trying to do here. What does without how mean? Like, what is the, I'm just not familiar with that idea. So, so basically, I'm, I'm going to try not to get too much into the weeds here, but basically there's a, there's a theological debate over, for example, lines in the Quran about, you know, where it describes, for example, uh, God has a throne or a hand or something like that. And does that mean God literally has a throne or is that to be taken uh, metaphorically as representing something that's without how? That just you can't rationally explain because God is unknowable. So one school of thought took a, was were rationalists, the Mutazilis, and they believed in the rational idea that every text, the text has to be viewed in, it's like there actually is a throne somewhere. And then the Ashadis, which who, who said Bilal Kaifa, said without how, sort of throwing up your hands, saying, you know, this is a verse that's inscrutable that we can't really understand. And they similarly had debates about natural law, where mm-hmm. Some scholars coming from the Aristotelian line of philosophy said that there are natural laws in the universe. And the Ashadis said, there is no natural law, which is actually really interesting because the sequel to Dune, Dune Messiah, has a lot of critiques in Paul's spice visions of natural law. But I'll, I'll stop there because it's a bit oh, of the weeds. Yeah, no, that, that isn't in the weeds at all. It's really, I mean, it's key to understanding what is going on in these books and kind of where the references come from. And it's, it is one of the, central issues in Dune, right, is sort of how are we going to tackle these, you know, this kind of spiritual history that they've inherited, and then how that will be connected up with like the science of of their world, right? Like, how are they going to connect together these two sides of their civilizations? So I think it's cool. (laughs) I learned something, so I appreciate it. Well, no, I actually wanted to kind of shift things slightly and talk about, like, how do we read Dune now in the 21st century? And, you know, in particular, two things come to mind. First of all, you know, we've had two or three generations now of, as you put it in your essay uh, that everybody can read online, which we're going to link to in the show notes. um, We've had two or three generations of, of white boys basically looking at this story as like a wish fulfillment story about a, you know, a, a dude who comes from a privileged background and then becomes the savior and gets to become the most special ever. And that is by taking drugs, Don't by forget. taking drugs. And <laughs> that, that is a valid reading of the text. And, you know, in fact, one of the things that really jumps at me reading do now is that they really lean into the idea that like, there's this magic that only women can do like the Benny Gesserit, except for one special dude. And the one special dude who, who can do the magic that's usually only for women can do it better than anybody, including all of the women. And he's like the most special, you know? And I feel like that is a thing that comes up in other stories. Like I think there's Andre Norton has a thing like that. I think that there are hints of that in some of the Robert Jordan stories, but I think that it is this kind of fantasy of like a man being, being so awesome that he can, take ownership of this thing that's usually only for women and he can make it his. Uh, but then the other thing that's really happened since Dune that was was published and that cannot help shaping our reading of the story is that we've had multiple wars over oil 
at this point. And we've had this sort of clash of civilizations hypothesis that became hugely mainstream at the end of the Cold War in the early 1990s, the idea that we were heading for a historic clash between the Judeo-Christian world on the one side and the Islamic world on the other, and that this was going to be the great clash of our time. And this was even before 9-11 that people were spreading this, this meme with sort of Francis Fukuyama and those kinds of people in the early 1990s. So I guess I'm curious, like both of you guys, I'd love to hear what you think. How does this change our reading of the text? Like, how can we read it now without, can we see past these things? Do Should we let these things influence how we read the text? Yeah, um, I, I think th- the gender stuff in Dune is really problematic and always bothers me a lot when I read it. Basically, the Bene Gesserit or Gesserit, I'm, I'm never sure how to pronounce half the words that aren't from Arabic. Um, although that actually does have an Arabic, some Arabic terms as origins as well. They're basically superpowered Lady Macbeths, and he he sort of writes them in that way. Uh, these sort of witches who are, you know, the Mentats are the men who are re- super rational and they replace the robots. And then the Bene Gesserit are the sort of like witch-like political manipulators. Um, uh, I think one way I try to <laughs> I try to work around it in my own head is to try to read it generously, not to sort of be an apologist for Herbert, but just to try to spin out other meanings from the text just on its own. Um, like, I think what's really, for me, when I reread Dune, what I found to be most striking was that uh, Lady Jessica, uh, Paul's mother, has almost as much, if not the same screen time as Paul. And she actually, t- to my mind, she's the most, if not more than, more than Paul, uh, the most interesting character of the novel. And she triggers so many of the, the key events that trigger off the whole series. And I think another potential way to read it is the Kwisatz Haderach, who's sort of that superpowered male, the exception to the, to the female superpowered norm. One way to read it, looking at Herbert's interviews, is that the purpose of the Kwisatz Haderach wasn't to give this man this power, but rather for the Bene Gesserit to exercise power at a distance. So in some ways, he doesn't really matter. And he's really just an instrument of the Bene Gesserit. And I think I have a whole, I have a whole weird take uh, on how the Bene Gesserit are basically just white feminists. That they're asserting control over their bodies, which is this like super feminist thing, but it's really just to exert imperial control over these like these people on this planet. Yeah, Um, they do it at the end. It's not to like apologize for Herbert. Like it's definitely problematic. I'm just trying to. They're the order of parents. Yeah, no, I love the idea that the Bene Gesserit are like white feminists and they're like, and all of this works because we have all of these like oppressed indigenous people on planets who, you know, we can just go you know, use and mobilize whenever we want. (laughs) And in fact, that's what their plan, their long-term plan has been. How do you mobilize people by using, by seeding their their traditions with this idea of a messiah? So it becomes like a perfect social control mechanism, which, you know, white feminists love that. I think like, I was really interested in what you were asking about whether sort of like changing political relations between, you know, vaguely, Middle Eastern nations and vaguely defined Western nations, how that affected Dune. And I think like the answer to that has to come by looking at the retellings of the story, which is really either later books, obviously, or looking at the films and miniseries. I don't have a ton to to say about this, but I, I do think it's interesting that 
it wasn't until the new film that's coming out uh, in 2022 now. 2021. 2021, late 2021. Sorry, my brain keeps pushing it back because I I don't want to get too attached to it. That's, I think, the first movie that has had people of color playing roles of Fremen. Of course, in the David Lynch version, pretty much everyone is white, whitey white, um, like super white. They're all Midwesterners for some reason. And then in the miniseries, they're pretty much Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the Fremen are all pretty much white. Oh yeah, they're well. they're they're very white, and they're not even. I feel like the I feel like the way they're cast, they're supposed to look sort of Mediterranean, like they have dark mm-hmm. hair, you know, like they're like space Italians or something. I feel like Cheney is sort of it's ambiguous. I mean, in the twenty in the two thousand sci fi version, it's a little ambiguous. But I do think that there it's clear that at least in terms of casting and how it would look to people that there was this effort to kind of disavow any kind of obvious connection, even though it's clearly allegorically about, you know, um, resource mining in the Middle East. As you said, I mean, these are movies and stories mostly created by white guys. And like disavowal is like one of the greatest weapons um, of white supremacy and colonialism. So it makes sense that you would see this like repeated effort at least in terms of casting, to disavow that there might be any connection to any sort of real world political relationships, even while these characters are using words borrowed from Arabic and using um, ideas borrowed from Islam. Yeah, well, and of course, there's always also a very long and shameful tradition in in mass media, movies and TV of casting white people to play people of color. And this has been going on for basically as long as we've had cameras, unfortunately. But I would say also part of the nice arsenal of disavowal weapons. Right. (laughs) Whitewashing is another great strategy for that. Slightly shifting the topic, but when I think about how you know, our reading of Dune has changed since 1965, like in the last like almost 60 years or 55 years, I guess. Um, I kind of think about Judge Dredd a little bit because Judge Dredd is another thing that starts out as like a satire of like the police state and like this kind of super tough macho police image. And people embraced it. Like a ton of people wanted to be Judge Dredd. They admire Judge Dredd. They love Judge Dredd. And over time, Judge Dredd sort of lost some of its sheen of irony and the later Judge Dredd adaptations, but also later Judge Dredd comics, I feel lean into the idea that you're supposed to admire Judge Dredd rather than thinking he's problematic. And at the same time in the real world, obviously the police were becoming more like Judge Dredd in real life. And I feel like something similar might have happened to Dune, where so many people admired Paul unironically that over time it's harder to see Paul, the way he actually is in the book, as in, as kind of a problematic figure who we're supposed to think, you know, needs to be critiqued. Yeah, I wonder if you guys could talk a little bit more about the different, like, how is Paul portrayed in the books, you know, like, because I feel like he's compared to dictators. And like, he's not as sympathetic in the books. But yeah, there's this sort of transformation of of his character into something admirable, even though even in the movies, he's he's always giving these um, speeches that, to my ears now, um, sound just like he's saying "Make America Great Again." Kind of, you know, like it's like "Make Dune Great," like "Let us crush our enemies," and it's like that. That seems like an unhealthy message. <laughs> I don't know, a little toxic. <laughs> yeah. So actually, we're going to take a really quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the different adaptations of Dune and how they change things from the books, and how they each interpret the character of Paul and the whole world differently. 
So reading Dune now, the thing that really jumps out at me is, is that Frank Herbert does something which no novelist would do now or very few novelists would do now, which is he has scenes where multiple people are in a scene together and he will share, he'll basically give us thought balloons. He'll be like, Paul is in the scene with the the great mother or whatever, and we get like an italicized thing of Paul thinks, this is really scary. I don't know what I'm going to do. And then <laughs> the great mother does something and we get her thought balloon and she's like thinking, oh gosh, this dude is awesome. Basically, we get different thought balloons in the same scene. It's not even that we jump from POV to POV. It's just that, or that the narrator kind of tells us what people are thinking. We actually get italicized thought captions from multiple characters in the scene. And it's interesting that like, Lynch makes this huge effort in his movie to kind of convey that, which looks kind of embarrassingly clunky now. He, the only way you get any subtext in the Lynch Dune is by having these like voiceovers as people like kind of stare at the camera, you get to hear their thoughts. And it feels like Lynch is kind of groping his way towards showing people's internal analog without actually giving them any kind of nuance in, on the screen which I think is interesting. And it's, I guess that's a roundabout way of saying that like in the book, Paul has a huge internal monologue full of self-doubt, but also full of kind of like, you know, trying to puzzle things out and figure things out. And, you know, when you put him on screen, it's really hard to convey that. It's really hard to show that. And in fact, the version of Paul in the, in both, I think the Lynch version and the sci-fi miniseries from 2000 is a little bit of a swaggering dick. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I noticed that when I rewatched the 1984 Dune this summer uh, in preparation for the film, which is now delayed a year. Um, but I, I, I thought it was really admirable that they at least tried to do the with the voiceovers, the internal monologue. But it just it feels awkward. It sort of makes the book very difficult to film in my mind. But yeah, and I, I, I do agree that Paul does come off as a <laughs> as a dick, I think, especially in the in the um, miniseries. But I think what I still appreciated about the Lynch Dune is that it captured, because it was David Lynch, it was very weird and dark and strange. And so even though it did have all those elements of the savior narrative, it didn't feel like a comfortable film to watch. Uh, and I think for that reason, I sort of like that it, it captured that weirdness and darkness that is at the heart of Dune. It's not like Star Wars where you have this scrappy farm boy who becomes the savior of the galaxy because he's descended from the whoever has the genetic strand or whatever it is they call it. Um, the midichlorians. Uh, the midichlorians, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> whereas the, 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 the 2000 miniseries, uh, it almost felt, I, I, I liked it better in the sense that it's tried to be super accurate. And so because of that, even if they think they're telling a savior story, in some instances, they also are stuck with the, the strict dialogue and scenes. But on the other hand, it did feel at times, I don't know, just kind of too normal for Dune, especially the first miniseries, I think. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that the Lynch version is creepy and dark and haunting. And I, I love a lot of the visuals in it, which is important because Dune is about landscapes and it's about enormous worms. And you kind of want that weird, giant visual impact. I got the feeling, I mean, I've always felt like in all of the versions, except for maybe in the novel, that Paul is kind of, he's kind of one-dimensional and annoying because 
all he ever does is sort of talk about how he has this like weighty destiny to fulfill. And then once in a while, he'll think about how he's going to like go hump a Fremen chick or whatever. And that's like part of his great destiny is that he gets to hump this this chick who he won't marry. And it's like, okay, you know, I, I got it. <laughs> like, you know, but I'm, I, 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 you know, it, like I said, it's like, it's a fantasy about like being a teenage guy who takes drugs and becomes super powerful and gets a really hot girlfriend and gets to ride on a giant worm. All of that stuff is exactly what I wanted when I was in high school. But I, I think as, an, as a grown up or as someone coming back to the story, what I'm much more interested in are the politics. And I think that um, at least in the first miniseries, uh, we at least got to understand a little bit more about how, about basically like the psychological warfare that the Bene Gesserit have been waging across the galaxy and how they've been manipulating people like the Fremen into accepting their authority. How environmental racism really works, you know, like how do you get people to buy into the destruction of their own environment? Um, and that stuff to me, you know, we don't really see much of that at all in the David Lynch version, but we do get to see it in the miniseries. And of course we see it. I haven't read all of the books, so I don't know how far this goes. Tell me more <laughs> like about the books, because I, I did they did they get further into the politics or do we just continue with with Paul's kind of um, evolution into a god? Do you mean the books, uh, not the Herbert, the Brian Herbert ones? No, the, uh, not the Brian. We're, we're going to set aside Brian Herbert <laughs> for a separate show. Um, we're just going to focus on the original um, books written cool. by, by Frank. Yeah, yeah I, what's, what's especially interesting, um, if we're talking about the sequels to Dune by Frank Herbert, is the fact that John Campbell, uh, who is sort of the proselytizer of the hero's journey, the Superman, especially in golden age science fiction, rejected the sequel to Dune, Dune Messiah, because he felt like it was it was undoing his monomyth that he was uh, shoving into the the minds of uh, young white boys <laughs> in the <laughs> mid twentieth century. Uh, and Herbert liked that. Herbert's intention was to to undo that. And it's very interesting that throughout the in many interviews he sort of has that log line, which I think is a bit derogatory in a certain sense. Um, that Margaret Atwood sometimes uses as well in her her interviews of saying, I'm not writing science fiction. Uh, I mean, I don't really care where it is on the shelf, but I'm not really writing science fiction. I'm I'm doing a, a camp version of it and and crit criticizing it. But I think, I mean, there's one way in which he's disparaging the genre, but I think the other way to read that is that he's disparaging the politics underlying the tropes of the genre at the time. Uh, and so you see in the sequels that Paul becomes a sort of, he literally calls himself Hitler uh, and Genghis Khan. And he sort of becomes this this uh, tyrant. Um, and it, there's a lot more. It definitely gets gets far deeper into the politics and the terraforming. Uh, that would probably require another <laughs> an hour long conversation into itself. Yeah. And actually, part of what I liked about the trailer for the upcoming Dune movie is that Timothée Chalamet, who I hope I'm, hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Seems a little bit more tentative, a little bit more kind of like he always, as an actor, always seems like he has a little bit more vulnerability in his performances. And he seems like he's going to bring that to Paul, like his version of Paul is a little bit more vulnerable. And in fact, we've got three clips of the same scene from the 1984 Dune, the 2000 sci-fi Dune miniseries, and the upcoming 2021 Dune of the scene where Paul sticks his hand into the box full of pain with a poison needle in his throat. Put your right hand in the box. What's in the box? 
pain. Stop. Put your hand in the box. I hold at your neck, the gomja bark. This one kills only animals. Are you suggesting a duke's son is an animal? Let us say, I suggest you may be human. Your awareness may be powerful enough to control your instincts. Your instinct will be to remove your hand from the box. Put your hand inside and we'll see. What's in it? Hey. I hold the conjabar at your throat. You got to ADs. Keep your hand in the box and live. Remove it and die. The test is simple. Remove your hand from the box and you die. What's in the box? Pain. What do you guys think is different between those three scenes? Because I definitely there's some similarities. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's know it's a it's a key moment um is is this his origin story in all of these films i feel like it's important that this is the first really big moment with paul in all three versions because it's how we see that he's badass he can withstand this test that nobody else can withstand and he can he can survive this horrible pain and i feel like you know the 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 Lynch version does a really good job of unpacking that this, the thing from the book of like, this is to see if you're human or an animal. And basically like, if you can overcome your instinct and they do, you know, they really dwell on it in the Lynch Dune where they skip over a lot of other stuff. And in the 2000 miniseries, he's just like, what is it? Oh, it's pain. Okay. And then he does the the meditation (laughs) against fear. And he's just like, they don't really kind of get into it as much. And the, the, the Reverend mother is a little bit more just kind of like creepy and weird about it and doesn't really explain. And then it seems like the Timothée Chalamet version, the, the upcoming version, he's a lot more scared and a lot more tentative. And the needle at his throat is, is at his throat before he even gets told to put the hand in the box. It's like he's already kind of under duress a little bit more. He's more vulnerable. Whereas the thing that stood out to me about the Lynch one was how, you know, in the process of talking about are you a human or an animal, Paul manages to kind of discuss his, um, you know, his aristocratic heritage, right? So we're reminded um, that he's an aristocrat and he's a fancy pants. And that's not really foregrounded at all in the other two scenes. Right. Although even in the um, in the 2020 tra- or now 2021 trailer, I don't know if it was exactly in that clip, but around the clip, you hear the Reverend Mother describing how his father has failed to have to gain political power uh, and sort of the ongoing aristocratic stuff that's going to happen. But the, I, what I liked about I think it's I agree that I think it's still different in the new version in that there's a sense of dread and it's not like some fancy pants, like you said, aristocratic mumbo jumbo but there's actually a sense of um uncertainty there it's not just you know some this kid is going to go and acquire power it's maybe he will acquire power but at what cost and it's especially telling to me i have other critiques of maybe what this film will be but it's 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 telling to me that villeneuve has compared paul's character to uh corleone from the godfather and that villeneuve has read all the sequels as a kid so he knows that it's a critique of 
it's not just the hero's journey. Um, but we'll see how that plays out. Let maybe um, in the final minutes of the episode, we can turn to um, what we're hoping for and what we know about the 2021 movie. Um, um, Harris, you were saying that you are excited about the idea that this could be a mob boss kind of Paul Atreides. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. No, I mean, the, the, the only way I'm, I'm excited about it is, is in the sense that uh, the fact that Villeneuve spoke about Paul in that way suggests that he is cognizant um, that this isn't just a hero's journey. And even if you listen, this is super uh, uh, in the weeds analysis, but even if you listen to the, the uh, song that he plays uh, from Pink, I think it's from Pink Floyd. Uh, yes, it's, it, it is. It, it's Pink not Floyd. a happy, it sounds kind of happy and, and not happy, but sort of like militant, like, joyous. But also there's this underlying uncertainty, under, undercurrent. And Villeneuve, uh, sort of what I did to prepare for the film was I watched all his previous films. Uh, and what's really interesting is the way in which he plays with the sort of distance between the music he uses in a, in a, in a film and uh, what's actually happening in a scene to, disturb, to sort of disturb or subvert the reader's sense of certainty. Uh, which is exactly, to my mind, what Herbert is doing throughout the Dune books. He, he, he says, I'm giving you the hero's narrative and then subverting it and so showing your complicity in it. So Villeneuve's first, he'd done other films, but his first major film, um, which is one of my favorite films of all time, is called Insandi. Uh, it's about the Lebanese Civil War. It's based on a, a, a play by a Lebanese Canadian playwright, but it's done completely fictionally. So I think Villeneuve, even though they, they filmed it in various areas in Jordan and elsewhere, he intentionally put camels in certain scenes to indicate that it actually didn't take place in Lebanon because he wanted to, he says he wanted to create an imaginary political space in which to talk about real violence and trauma, which is exactly what, in many ways, exactly what Dune is doing. And the very first scene of that film, he uses a Radiohead song intentionally to disturb, he says to disturb the Western gaze. Because he, he felt if he gave some sort of traditional Middle Eastern music, it would feel like you were getting a, a, an authoritative peek at what was happening. Uh, and that very much is what Dune is doing. So I have other problems, I think, you know, the, the total or almost total lack of uh, Middle Eastern or African actors in the film. Um, but in terms of what Villeneuve is doing with the story, I'm... I'm hopeful, cautious, but hopeful. What you were saying about the use of Radiohead um, sounds like also it's kind of anti-Orientalist as well. You know, it's trying to say like, nope, this isn't just some like story being brought to you in this nice tidy package showing that like all people in the Middle East are the same and they all listen to this one kind of music and somehow they never, you know, figured out that there was other kinds of music on the internet or whatever. And so, yeah, I think like Dark Side of the Moon, which is the song that's used in the trailer uh, is also, it's a little bit different just because it kind of, that album came out around the time when Dune Mania was at like a frenzy, it's like early 70s. So I feel like it's also evoking the time that the books were popular. Yeah, one thing that gives me uh, some hope for the upcoming Dune movie is that I know that they're only filming the first half of the book, which, you know, the one way in which the the sci-fi miniseries is superior to the Lynch miniseries is that it does have the ability to slow down and kind of like dwell on the nuances and the political kind of subterfuges that are going on. And there are moments where Paul and Jessica get to talk about like how they're consciously exploiting 
the legends among the Fremen that the Bene Gesserit had planted there. And I think that, as you said earlier, Jessica is in a lot of ways the most interesting character in the book, and she really doesn't get much to do in the in the Lynch version. She's kind of just like there. Whereas in the the miniseries, she does get a lot more agency. And I'm hoping in the movie that also Jessica gets to kind of step up and be more of a, a driving force. Yeah, I, I really hope so as well. I know Villeneuve has said that's what he wants to do. I think it's it's really interesting to me that Villeneuve uh, in an interview somewhere said that he he wants to explore the quote unquote, Herbert's quote unquote exploration of masculine and feminine power. Uh, which to me is both the most problematic part of Dune, uh, or one of the most problematic parts of Dune, but also I'm really interested to see how he interprets around all of those problems. And this is definitely one of those. One other way I think that I, I'm hoping they explore further is Chaney or Chani's role, because and Hera as well, who becomes this weird sort of customary wife to Paul. Because I think a, a one big critique of, of Dune and the adaptations is just the lack of intersectionality. Um, and I think having sort of a brown or black woman uh, have a lot of power and agency in a story would be really cool. And I think Cheney really gets short trip throughout the Dune novels. And I'd love to see uh, Zendaya, Zendaya take the reins. Yeah, no, I'm excited about that too. I've always, as I kind of hinted at earlier when I was snarking about how, you know, he gets a hot Fremen chick. I mean, that you know, in the in the novel and especially in the movies and miniseries, you know, she's represented as just like his prize, basically, you know, like he gets to have the weirding weapons and he gets to have a girlfriend and like it's all and he gets a big worm. And it's just kind of like all the presents that you get because you're, um, you know, leading this resistance. And so having her actually be a person and also just giving us, if if Villeneuve does end up giving us much more of that political backstory, what an interesting film, you know? Like, I just love the idea of, like, a weird-ass sci-fi film, um, you know, set on another world that's principally about political maneuvering and resource extraction. Like, to me, that's really exciting. <laughs> um, and I think it can be, like, really gripping and, and a really good thriller. I mean, I think that kind of foregrounding the inner, the, the kind of the political issues um, gives them a really big opportunity. So hopefully Villeneuve took that opportunity um, and we're going to be back in a year gushing about how this is finally the Dune that we wanted. I sure hope so. Thank you so much for joining us, Hadius. Uh, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me at hdernity on Twitter. Thank you. Nice. And uh, thank you so much to everybody for listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. We really appreciate your support. If you want to support us more, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash ouropinionsarecorrect. And we can follow us on Twitter at OOACpod. You can find us wherever podcasts are found. And please, please, please leave a review if you like our podcast. And please subscribe and tell your friends. And we're super grateful to our astounding and heroic audio producer, Veronica Simonetti, and to Chris Palmer for the music. And once again, to you for listening. Thank you so much. We'll be back in Bye. two weeks. Bye. Bye.